Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. This week, I'm really excited to be speaking to a wonderful friend and a great leader, the publisher of the Washington Business Journal, Alex Orfinger. Alex has received numerous awards for his impact on the community, from Business Person of the Year, on to Washingtonian of the Year, and to Leadership Greater Washington's Leader of the Years, because of the many great things he has done in the community. So listen in and learn from Alex's journey, what motivated him to have even a greater impact on the community, and what he plans to do now that yet again, he is the publisher of the Washington Business Journal. Here is my conversation with Alex Orfinger. Alex Orfinger, welcome, my friend, to Partnering Leadership. Really excited to have you. I am pleased to be here with you, Mahan. Thank you for having me. When we talk about impactful leaders in this region, there isn't anyone that comes to mind before you, Alex, because of the great things you've done. So I want to backtrack a tiny bit and find out a little bit about your personal journey before we talk about some of the leadership impact that you've had and you're looking to have on the community. I'm a big believer that how we grew up and where we grew up has a big impact on us. So whereabouts did you grow up and how did that impact who you've become? So I grew up about uh, 30, 40 miles east of New York City on Long Island. I um, grew up in a pretty middle-class town, fairly standard of you know 1960s, 1970s America. It was a very segregated town. I like to tell everyone that I grew up, I'm Jewish, so I grew up in a Jewish home, and 50% of my community was Jewish, 50% were Catholic. Those were divided equally between Italians and Irish, and there were no Episcopalians or Protestants. But the most important defining characteristic of that town was that there were no people of color at all. People of color were all in the neighboring town. It was a segregated part of the world. When I say I grew up in a Jewish home, my parents were uh, childrens of not so much Holocaust survivors, but they grew up through the Holocaust where lots of their family were killed in Germany and Eastern Europe. So there was this bruise on them and a bruise in our family that is hard to really fully understand, except that kept my, my parents in their cocoon of just being friends and only trusting people that were similar to us. Uh, so that really did mark me in a way. Uh, it marked my upbringing, but also marked pieces of it that I didn't want to be, to be like. It sounds like that has had a formative impact on you. So how has that influence, that experience influenced who you have become as a leader today? So I have a letter that my grandfather wrote to my father in the, in the peak of the Holocaust. It sits behind me on my desk. My grandfather, who I'm named after, I actually never, I never met, but he was Alex Dorfinger. He was a Polish immigrant. He was a butcher. He was uneducated, but probably the most educated man when you read his letters. So he has a letter that he writes to my father as my father was trying to sort through what he would be in his life and he was trying to define himself. And my grandfather quoted the Bible, quoted Moses, and just said, you know, 
nobody's going to say that you are a great financier, that you're a great banker, you're a great business person. They're going to say that you are a great man. And that is how you should define your life, to be humble and to just serve and to be a great man. I read that letter from my grandfather all the time because I think of it writing me, you know, when he was writing my father in 1945. I'm the grandson of a Polish immigrant, of a butcher, of someone who came to this country with nothing. But he has asked me to be humble and to be a man and to give. And that is what the lesson that I take from him. I sit here, you know, Mohammed, when I, it actually chokes me up even telling this story because you know, he was an extraordinarily brilliant man, self-made, but cared about people around him. And I don't know how that got to me, but that is, that is the vein of my ancestry that most directly feeds who I am. It is absolutely beautiful, Alex, hearing the words of a grandfather you never met had such a profound impact on you and through you on so many people in across the country and most especially here in our region. It's fabulous to hear that. So you grow up in this environment, Alex. You go to college and then from Vassar, you decide to come down to D.C. What brought you to D.C.? I didn't know what else to do. I graduated college. I had a real formative experience for me as a person was in my senior year in college, my best friend committed suicide. And it totally made me question so much about who I was as a person and what I was going to do. And I had all these plans about, you know, going to graduate school and doing this and doing that. And all of that got short-circuited because John killed himself. And I, I just was lost. I spent years sort of searching for who I was and what I wanted to be. That's how I ended up in Washington. A friend of mine called me one day. I said, why don't you come down to Washington? I've got this job that I might be able to set you up on an interview for at the Brookings Institution. And I came down on like a Thursday and I started there on a Monday as a, as a junior research assistant. I was making $6 an hour and uh, I was in the top of the world. I, I loved being in Washington. I was around really smart people all the time. It felt like I was in the, back in college without any other students around. So with that, did you have any aspirations to go into foreign service? Did you went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service? What got you there? So Mahan, I, um, you know, I look at all these choices that I made in my 20s that were, that were rooted in this you know, sort of being lost in my early 20s. You know, I was struggling then uh, with who I was, struggling with being a, a gay man, uh, struggling with just a lot of basic communication issues that I was struggling with, and I just fell into it. I just went to it thinking that I was going to find a home in either the Foreign Service or in more likely some academic environment. I realized about a year into it that it was just all wrong, but I met a great cohort of friends that are my lifelong friends now, set me on this path back into the business world. I have to say that my most important goal when I was in my 20s was you know, not only to find purpose, but also to find success. I was always fearful that I just would never find it, that I was trying so hard to like figure out how am I going to be successful in this world? How am I going to plot my course in this world? 
And it took me most of my 20s to figure that out. And I tell that to a lot of people that I'm mentoring, that it's like, it's okay to be a little lost here. Not everyone wakes up the day they're in college and says, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a, the CEO of a software company. It takes a while sometimes to find your path. And it took me a long time. I was emerging from my best friend killing himself. I was emerging from trying to figure out how to come out in a way that worked for me as a gay man. Uh, I was sorting through just relationship, just sort of finding love in my own life and finding ways to love myself. It is absolutely incredible to hear that from one of the most successful people I know on a whole set of different areas of life. That's wonderful to hear, Alex. So if you had a chance to give advice to young Alex and a lot of people that are younger that are probably sort of facing some of the same issues, maybe not exactly the same issues, but some of the questioning, some of the self-doubt that they have, what advice would you give to that younger Alex or the younger generation? So I, I appreciate your question, Maham, and I'm going to answer the question. You can't rewind your life. So if I had to live it over again, I would hope that I, you know, when I was in my 20s, I would have a lot more courage to be who I was at that moment. I wish that I, that I had been open to some mentors who could have helped direct me forcibly in a direction that worked for me. And I wish, again, I had this magic wand that gave me a little bit more self-awareness about who I was and what my great strengths are as a leader and as a person. I wish I had that when I was 22. I'm thankful that I have them now. So I don't have any regrets about that. I just wished it all happened faster. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's incredible. We are who we are based on the experiences we've had. And if we didn't have those experiences, we would be different people. And I know I, as a person, I'm fortunate and this community is fortunate that you went through this, those experiences and found the leader that you are today, Alex. You went through a series of different roles, ended up publisher of the Business Journal in Atlanta, went to Dallas, and then you chose to come to a government town in the mid-1990s to run the Business Journal. What gave you that idea? I always wanted to come back to Washington, number one, because Washington had been a place that I was extraordinarily happy because I was surrounded by people who are really smart all the time. And it's a classic Washington thing. You know, you're sitting at a, in pre-COVID times, you would be sitting in a restaurant someplace and every, all the chatter around you was the things that were really important in the world. Like people were at the center of these things. So people are just smart here. And that's what I love about being here in Washington. So when I came back here and I took over the reins of the Business Journal, you know, I can remember people telling me that, what is this rag that you're running? What is this real estate rag that you've got? This newsletter people would refer to it in. It was kind of insulting and disarming, but I realized after spending a little bit of time thinking about it is because it was a government town at that point, but it wasn't totally government town. There was this growing business community that was that was self-grown, that was spinning out of, you know, Defense Department, that NIH, all of these things that were happening, all these forces that were happening in the late 90s that were congealing to make the local business community a strong and vibrant place to be. And that we thought at the Business Journal at that time that we needed to own that. We needed to be the people that were crafting a message, uh, crafting a, actually a space 
that allowed the local business community to function and be a community that was separate from the federal government and separate from the international community here. And that we could play a role in doing that. We weren't the only ones doing that. We were, we, but we were going to play a good role in, in providing business intelligence for them. You know, I make a joke about this. You know, when we hosted our first events in the late 90s, mid 90s, whenever it was, I intentionally would never invite government leaders, senators, congressmen, the mayor. It wasn't important to the business community. And the reason it wasn't important is that any time that the mayor or the senator walked in the room, they became the most important person. What I believe and what the Business Journal's central value is, is that business people are the most important people in the room. So that CEO of a $50 million company is not less important than a U.S. senator. They are equally important. But if you brought a center in there, it, it just confused it. So we kept these communities very distinct. They were business, business events for business people. So it sounds like that was one of the real major things that you did with the Business Journal. What else did you do? Because there are a couple of peak elements to the Business Journal from my perspective, looking back at those years. One of them is you made Business Journal a force in the greater Washington, D.C. region. How did you think through that? What did you do to make Business Journal a force in addition to focusing on the business in the region? So first of all, I listened a lot. You know, so I, you know, I'm making my point to just meet a lot of, a lot of people. And you know, the questions that, you know, that I would be asking people, and I do this to this day really is, you know, what are the issues that are important to you as a business? Like what, what are the things? I don't want to make some assumption as uh, the publisher of the Washington Business Journal that I know what are the issues that are important to X, Y, or Z company. So I was always constantly listening to that and trying to make sure that we were riding the wave of the issues that were important to the local business community. So the seminal moment really that really put us on the map was in the late 90s when we were watching this businesses coalesce around giving more in the community, philanthropy, investing in the community because not just for their own sake, but because they made it was going to make it a stronger community for their own businesses to operate in. So at that point, we developed this idea of the Business Philanthropy Summit, where we would chart what businesses were doing, we would rank them, and we'd have them kind of in this friendly competition with each other. So that put us on the map. Also, the fact that we were able to secure the First Lady as a speaker got us on the front page of the Washington Post. So it all of a sudden said, we're not a newsletter anymore. We're right there in the heart of what is important for local businesses. So we did that. We also really dedicate that time, like uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, even the late 2000s, you know, we would ride these waves of venture capital investing, technology investing. We would dedicate more and more resources, reporting resources to those companies that we knew were companies that people were really interested in. So, you know, I'm really proud. You know, we, we wrote some of the first stories on Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategy. We wrote it when he was, you know, a very, very small company. Now he's running a multi-billion-dollar company. We ran some of the very first stories on Reggie Agrawal, who founded Cvent. Uh, I remember me- meeting Reggie when this was just like a initial idea when he was just leaving Shaw Pittman. We wrote about it. It's an enormous company right now as well. So what we were able to really ride along as we were able to capture people early in their career, we would report on them, we would report on them. We didn't make them celebrities, they made themselves celebrities, but our reporting on them really helped 
integrate them into the success of the greater Washington community. And you know, Alex, with your strategy, both in covering some of these business leaders and most especially with the Philanthropy Summit, what you did was the right thing for the strategy of the business journal to become a force in the region, but also you had an impact on the regional thinking and community. So the Business Philanthropy Summit really energized a lot of the businesses in this region to reflect on their responsibility to, to the community differently. You know, when you think about the region, I, I think about the region a lot and sort of what, there aren't very many institutions that pull the region together. The Washington Post certainly does. The Business Journal does. You know, the Council of Governments. You know, maybe there's some regional business organizations that try to do it, but there's a lot of forces that try to pull it apart. And county institution, county trade councils and chambers that are territorial in some ways. What we don't have is enough, you know, and I know there are a lot of people other than just me that are thinking about this. How do we knit the region together? You know, the states, the two states and the district by nature pull us apart. You know, they just make us competing jurisdictions. And that's what I, I always try to say, how do we help pull the region together to make it a bit better business community for all? I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard with the way that we're structured as a community. It is, but fortunately, now we have uh, yet another stint at the Business Journal leadership. Alex Dorfinger has stepped back in to lead the Business Journal. So what is it? The, pro the prodigal publisher returns. <laughs> so in this time around, Alex, what is different in both running the Business Journal and the vision you have for the Business Journal and its impact on the community? First of all, every day that I'm back in this job, I am more excited, uh, more excited about being in this, in this seat again. There's so much that's the same and there's so much different about the community. One of the reasons that I was excited to return to this job was, you know, I know that you know, we're in the worst economic downturn that our region you know, has seen in a long, long time. You know, it, it rivals what we went through in 2008, 2009. But I think that the, the business journal has always played this key role for local businesses and local business people in trying to provide tools and intelligence to help them grow their business. So in this downturn, it becomes even more important that we do that and we do that with a sharpened focus. So that's one thing that I come back to the business journal with, sharpening that focus to make sure that we're really delivering on that promise. But the second thing I think is actually in some ways equally interesting and, or, or even more interesting you know, as we go through this pandemic and, and the issues of systemic racism, I think we have a responsibility as the, as the Washington Business Journal to in some way help the business community lead them through these, these two issues. How do we come through this, this economic downturn and instead of seeing income inequality continue to grow between the haves and the have-nots, how do we use this as an opportunity to bring that together, to lessen the gap? We were already on that trajectory before the, the economic downturn. How do we make sure that the downturn does not exacerbate those problems and make the divisions even worse? Because that's bad for business over the long term, over the short term. And the same issue around you know, dismantling the structures of systemic racism. How do we do that in a way to make it better? Because Everything that we know about this economic downturn, it's, it's, it is affecting people of color worse than it's affecting white people, Caucasians. It is affecting them 
black people worse. So how do we make sure that as we come out of this, we do it in a way that restructures the way that we think about our community. And we again, make this community a model for how we've attacked the questions of racism and how do business people, CEOs, people in positions of business power, how do they take tangible steps to attack these systems? You know, it's going to be a long haul to get through this. This is not something, again, to use my magic wand. I wish we can just sort of say, okay, it's gone. We, we could stick, take steps this month, this year, but we're going to have to be fighting this fight for a long time. And that's the kind of role that I think we can play in the business journal. I want to play that role for us in the business journal. I think we can help. I'm sure you can. And the conversations that I've heard, at least with respect to uh, the anti-racism conversations over the past few months have been a lot more robust than any conversations that I'd heard for years. So I'm very optimistic that this is the moment we can actually make some changes to the systemic racism that exists. Now, a lot of the data that I've been seeing, Alex, like you have, is that the ongoing recovery when there is one, it could be a K-shaped recovery where it's, there are more opportunities even for a certain segment of the population and less so for others. How do you see us tackling those issues in the region? I think um, if I had the answer to that, it would be great. So I don't have the answer for that, but I have the beginnings of what I hope are collecting answers. You know, uh, first of all, I think it's every company's responsibility to play a role in some form or fashion. This is not something that's reserved for the largest companies, and it's certainly not reserved for the smallest companies. So we have to do things that, you know, you know and some of this, I have to actually turn the mirror on me as somebody who's running my own small business. Like we have to do things that are different. I think it has to start with, we have to have a, we as CEOs and leaders have to it has to be part of our own value system. We need to articulate that value as the leader of our organizations, that this is important. Inequality or equity is important to our organizations. Diversity is important to our organizations. Inclusion is important to organizations for the following reasons. It's central to who we are as an organization. We need to manage our leaders and our staff in a way to those goals and to those values, and we have to build proper incentives in that. We have to measure whether we're doing anything to this. We have, because what measured get what we measure will get done, as we know. And then I think there are other some other concrete steps that that businesses can take. You know, hiring policies, promotion policies, pay equity issues. Again, measuring these things, uh, gender equity issues. What we measure gets done. There's things around procurement that are much more complicated than I thought they were initially. Uh, but also simple in some ways. So what I'm trying to think of for myself on a personal level is, you know, when I'm looking now to hire a catering company to cater a virtual lunch or a virtual dinner, sure, I go to Ridgewell's because they're suffering, suffering mightily during this downturn, but I also turn to some Black-owned restaurants who equally need our help. So it's taking deliberate actions as we go through this process. We all have to take deliberate actions. We have to be accountable for it. And we are in it for the long haul. This is not something that will just magically go away in six weeks or six months. Well, I was optimistic before the conversation, Alex. I'm even more optimistic now because both you are mentioning that even as a small business, you are doing things differently with your own team at the Washington Business Journal. 
but also you are the kind of person that takes advantage of the opportunity of the platform that you have to speak to the broader community of changes we all need to make as leaders with ourselves, with our organizations, so the entire system changes. Yes. I just recited what my next column is, by the way. I, that's what's been in my head. <laughs> that, 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 fa- fantastic, fantastic that we've got, a, got some thoughts into that. So, Alex, any leadership resources, anything... Uh, books, podcasts, uh, of course, the Washington Business Journal is on top of the list. But any leadership resources that you find yourself recommending to others often with respect to how they can improve their own leadership? I wish I had a good answer for that, Mahan, because I don't actually. I'm sorry, sorry to ruin your interview here, Mahan, but I'm not the kind of guy that reads a lot of leadership books. What I do read a lot of is I read, I read a lot of history books. You know, So for instance, I'll give you my for instance. I just read this crazy book on the 1964 Alaskan earthquake. And what was so profound about the book, I don't, like, it is a leadership lesson for me, is that the book talks about the power of one person, actually, to communicate a lot of what was happening, not only in Anchorage, but also around the world, number one. But also, there's this moment that happens there where at the time of the earthquake, everything changed. Everything changed forever in Anchorage. People think of that as a demarcation, what happened, their life before the earthquake and their life after the earthquake. I think that resonates with me right now. We think a lot of what our life was like pre-pandemic and what our life will be post-pandemic. So if that's not a lesson in leadership right there in this book called This is Chance, I don't know really what is. What is going to stay the same and what do I need to just embrace that's going to be different? And what do I need to embrace that's going to be different going forward? This demarcation moment. So you are a student of leadership. You're an insightful one where you see leadership, whether in history or through these types of experiences, rather than someone need to translate it down to these are the four steps or these are the 18 steps that you need to take. So that's wonderful to hear. So Alex, if we have a chance to have a conversation a few years from now and you have had the kind of impact you wanted to have on the Business Journal and on this community, because at this point, you have won all kinds of awards, Alex. It's Washingtonian of the Year, uh, Business Leader of the Year, most especially Leader of the Years at LGW. So there is still something that drives you to do more for this community. It sure as heck is not getting another award. So what do you want your leadership legacy to be with respect to both the business journal and the broader community? A couple of things. Number one, I'd like to honor my grandfather and I'd like people to say that Alex is a humble person. Despite the enormous size of my ego, I try to remain humble, number one. Number two, and this also sounds equally as trite, And I think we're all on this world because we want to make a difference in the communities that we serve, that we want somebody to be able to say, gosh, he left some sort of legacy here. I'd like to be able to look back on this, and I'd like to say that I did accomplish something in the second stint that was meaningful, and it was meaningful around these issues of income inequality and systemic racism. That would be meaningful, and it would be worthy of some humility as well if we can do that. Those are meaningful, huge goals, Alex. 
And you started out by talking about the influence and impact of your grandfather, and you ended on the influence and impact of your grandfather and that legacy. So that is a great tribute to him. And I have no doubt that you will continue having significant impact on the entire community and on me. So on behalf of all the listeners of Partnering Leadership, thank you very much, Alex Yorfinger. Thank you, Mahan. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.